This is Super Investors and the Art of Worldly Wisdom. I'm Jesse Felder. Object to the test! This episode is brought to you by The Felder Report. I go through a ton of reading and research every day. uh, And on Saturday mornings, I send out a free email newsletter with the five things that I found during the week that were the most valuable to me. It can be a link, it can be a chart, it can be a quote. um, But I keep it brief, and it's just the stuff I found was most valuable. So if this is something that you'd like to receive, just go to thefelderreport.com. You can sign up right there on the homepage, and you'll be good to go. My guest for this episode is Louis Gav, and if you haven't heard of Louis already, I'm I'm really excited to share this uh, interview with you. Uh, Louis is one of the most interesting thinkers in the world when it comes to global macro investing. Uh, in fact, after I read a few of his pieces uh, over the past couple of months, I've thought, how is it that I have not already invited Louis to the podcast? He's just uh, a fascinating um, individual and very generous with his um, his framework and things. And so in this discussion, he shares his investment process, how he developed his own signature framework um, for thinking about the major asset classes around the world. What are some of the most important things he looks at in developing uh, that framework? We also get into several themes uh, that he is following right now and that really form the foundation for how he's investing his own money. I really got a ton out of this, and I hope you get half as much as I did. So please enjoy my conversation with Louis Gov. Ever wonder why fund managers can't beat the S&P 500? Because they're sheep, and sheep get slaughtered. Louis, welcome to the show. Thanks a lot. Great to be here. I'm, I'm really excited to, to have you do this. I, I've been reading your stuff recently. Uh, uh, there were several pieces that I've, I read recently, and I thought, man, I really need to talk to Louie about this and share these these themes with my audience because I think they're so critical to understanding what's going on in the world and the markets right now. Um, but before we dive into that stuff, uh, I, I really would like to understand a little bit more about you. I, you know, I was looking at your bio on, on the website. And uh, before you officially kind of dove into finance, uh, you went into the army for a couple of years. What was it that kind of inspired you to, to do that? Um, well, I come from a military family. Uh, pretty much every every male on my dad's side of the family was an army officer, uh, except for my dad. Um, and yeah, growing up, I just thought that that's what I do. I uh, So I, I went to officer school in France. And then I uh, joined the um, Mountain Infantry. Uh, it was, you know, ter- terrific couple of years. Uh, and then the, you know, the army told me, "Hey, look, you speak uh, decent English. You speak Chinese. Uh, you speak some Spanish. Where, wh- why don't we send you uh, to Brussels and you can be in NATO um, and and work in an office?" And I thought, well, that doesn't sound that great. And uh, if I'm going to be in an, in an office, uh, doing an office job, I, I might as well get paid a decent wage for it. Um, and so, yeah, so I left the army and, uh, moved it into finance and started getting paid a decent wage. Well, and it, it, it seems like, so, you know, the military is a, is a family history. You know, it seems like finance is probably a family history too. Was it, was it your dad that got you interested in finance in the first place also? Oh yeah. Well, definitely. Look, I, uh, I left the army and I thought, you know, I don't really know how to do anything. And my dad said, perfect. You'll be great for finance. Um, and, uh, so yeah, no, so my dad, um, uh, had started 
uh, his own money management firm uh, back in the 80s in France and moved it to the UK. Um, he'd, uh, it, it had been a, quite a su- big success. He sold it to Alliance Capital, uh, stayed at Alliance Capital for, for a few years and, and then basically retired. Um, so, yeah, there, there was definitely some, some immediate family history uh, in finance through my dad, although my dad's really was the only one who'd, who'd done a career in finance in the family. And and so you went into you know from the army went into um, to finance. You didn't necessarily work for your for your dad right away. Was it something was finance something you were interested in um, when you were younger, or was it just something you said, "Hey, I, I, you know, um, I want a career outside the army." Uh, finance sounds like a good opportunity. No, look, I, you know, I, I grew up in the middle of it. Uh, you know, my dad basically ran a macro fund, um, and so. You know, it was definitely part of the dinner conversations at home. Um, it was part of, you know, the friends that, that he brought back to the house. Um, and so, no, no, I, I, I was very lucky uh, in that uh, I, I grew up uh, grew up around it. Um, and, um, yeah, so when I, when I left uh, the Army, I was uh, lucky enough to be hired at, at Paribas uh, before, before the merger. Oops, sorry. Before the merger. Sorry about that. No problem. Uh, before the merger with um, um, uh, with BNP, um, and they sent me on uh, first to Singapore, uh, then to Hong Kong, and um, that's I really kicked off my career in earnest. Uh, you know, straight in the thick of things in Asia, and I moved. Uh, I was very lucky because I moved to Asia just a little bit before the Asian crisis, and I got to see of '97. And I got basically a front row seat on how quickly things can unravel uh, when leverage is excessive, when you've got currency mismatches. Um, you know, if you have an interest in macro, starting off your career in something like the Asian, Asian crisis uh, is uh, truly an ex- exceptional experience uh, on which to, to build uh, for later years. Yeah, and absolutely. And I, I've read somewhere, and you know, I think anecdotally, it just makes sense to me too that you know, um, some of the more interesting thinkers in the markets are those who went into the business uh, shortly before a crisis erupted. Right? I mean, you're almost permanently scarred by something like that for the rest of that's your right. career. It makes you more circumspect. And so, you think that's had that kind of an impact on your on your uh, philosophy today? Well, maybe when you know when you start you're not very responsible for very much. Right. Right. Um, If you have a big career, once you're like 15 years in, then you're responsible for that P and L and that might, a big crisis might be the end of your career. Um, when you start, when you start in the midst of one, it's, um, you know, you're, you're too junior to be fired, uh, and you're too junior to have really messed, messed things up. Um, so that was, uh, yeah, that was my luck, I guess, to be, uh, right place, right time. Um, but you know, the late nineties, if you were in Asia where, um, yeah, it was a quite a few tough years, 97, 98, you got the Asian crisis then you sort of get back on your feet. Then you've got the tech bust, which, you know, was pretty tough in certain markets like Taiwan, Korea, and elsewhere. Um, you got the tech bust. Uh, and then, you know, you come around on the other side. Uh, well, you've got the SARS crisis in 2003. You come around on the other side, you're, you're a little shaky. And perhaps, you know, and myself included, you're a little slow to realize that, hey, we're at the start of a massive bull market here. Um, and you, you know, basically from 2003 up to the 2008-2009 crisis, Asia just rips higher. 
Yeah, and, and so, you know, I want to try and um, dig into some of these themes that you're writing about. I think, you know, like I said before, they're, they're really important. But before we kind of dive into that, I'm really curious to understand a little bit more about your investment process. How did you, I mean, develop it? Um, obviously, it sounds like your dad was an inspiration. And then, you know, the, a lot of his colleagues and, and people who, you know, he was he was kind of working with. But Let's talk a little bit about the foundation of your process. Where, how do you kind of come up with investment ideas? Where does this stuff come from? Um, to be honest, um, you know, my, my own process is, is extremely simple. Um, I start off with the premise that economic cycles around the world are really driven by three key variables. Um, of course, uh, U.S. interest rates is a key variable. Uh, the other is the U.S. dollar. And here that probably reflects my training in emerging markets where the value of the U.S. dollar and changes in the U.S. dollar are, are such a key um, uh, component. Uh, and the third is, is oil prices. Um, you know, you get the direction on these three prices right, uh, U.S. interest rates, U.S. dollar and oil. Broadly, you're going to do OK. Uh, you, you get them wrong uh, and you're going to get slapped. Um, so that's uh, that's sort of. You know, that's that's my starting point. It's not to say that uh, other things don't matter, but by and large, those are the three prices on which you need to focus a disproportionate amount of your time to uh, to get the, the broad direction right. Um, you know, be, beyond that, uh, what we always say is, uh, in you know, our firm, GAFCAL, where we do two things. We have a money management arm and we have a, a, a macro research arm. We sell macro research to uh, a number of institutions around the world. Um and frankly, we say this because it's true, uh, you know, 80, 90 percent of the ideas that we write about tend to come from our clients. Um, we're very lucky that we've built, uh, you know, a solid network of, of people that, you know, through the questions they ask us, through the pushback that we get when we write something dumb, um, you know, it uh, it keeps us on our toes. And, yeah, so our, the, the better ideas uh, definitely come uh, from from our clients. Um, and you know, we're, we're lucky to have built, you know, over the past almost, uh, uh, 20 years now, a, a network that, that we can trust to, uh, to be honest with us and to basically tell us you guys are full of shit on this, excuse my French or completely wrong on that, uh, and so forth. And so, you know, that's, that's fascinating to me that, uh, you know, that it, it comes from the clients. It makes a ton of sense because, um, and, and honestly, I, that's one of the reasons why I enjoy writing about markets so much is because you, 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 you kind of create this network of feedback, uh, you know, and it, and it helps you. Uh, better understand and, and be better at what you're doing. So let's talk about, you know, in terms of, you know, just one of those three dynamics you're talking about. Where do you start, to, you know, to begin uh, with creating a uh, an idea of where the dollar should, you know, move over the next 18 months or so? Where, where do you begin in that in that thought process? Um, that's a great question. And to be honest, that's one that I've sort of gotten wrong uh, in the past 18 months already. Um, and when I say sort of gotten wrong, uh, it's I say sort of because, you know, the U.S. dollar has been stronger, but it hasn't been massively stronger. So, um, I, uh, you know, my view is the U.S. dollar was uh, is, should be heading lower. Um, and, well, it hasn't worked for the past 18 months. It hasn't been a disaster, but it definitely hasn't worked. Um now, uh, today, my view on uh, on the U.S. dollar is uh, very simply driven. Um, well, let me backtrack and say that uh, 
currency markets, uh, my view on currency markets in general, um, is that currency markets are serial monogamists um, in that uh, many things can impact currency markets. Uh, it can be differences in interest rates. It can be trade balances. It can be fiscal policies. Um, it can be uh, you know, risk off, risk on mentalities in the markets, etc. At any one time, you know, you have so many different things that can uh, impact uh, an exchange rate. Um, and but the reason I say they're serial monogamists is that uh, currencies tend to focus uh, on, or FX market tend to focus on one thing at any one time at the expense of all others. Um, and so again, that's why I call them a serial monogamist. At any one time, they might focus on the difference in interest rates at the expense of anything else, or they might focus at the difference in trade balance at the expense of anything else. Um, now, very clearly, uh, I think in recent years, one of the reasons for the strength uh, of the U.S. dollar was the difference in interest rates, the difference in monetary policy, um, and uh, the fact that basically the Fed was tightening while everybody else was easing. Um, and so the view was uh, the U.S. dollar is the cleanest dirty shirt, and it's uh, it's the only place where you're getting uh, an interest rates and where the central bank isn't actively trying to debase the currency, uh, which is what you're seeing in Europe, what you're seeing in Japan, uh, etc. Um, now, my view for the really the past year um, was that uh, this would change, that basically the Fed would need to start easing uh, and start easing uh, soon, um, and that basically as it became obvious to the market that the Fed would go from being hawkish to being dovish, uh, the U.S. dollar would uh, would basically start to roll over. Um, and uh, so, you know, for the past year, I think you have seen this shift from the Fed, uh, but you haven't seen uh, the shift uh, in the U.S. dollar. Um, I still think this shift in the U.S. dollar uh, is set to happen, and that might be a story for 2020 now. Um, but um, I think there'll be other factors that will contribute to uh, to the U.S. dollar weakness. One of them is that as the Fed starts to shift its uh, monetary policy stance, people will start to focus a little more on U.S. fiscal policy. Uh, and here, this is the where the U.S. really stands out uh, relative to almost anybody else uh, in the world, is in the complete uh, unwillingness to do anything uh, against uh, budget deficits that are just simply running away. You know, you now have budget deficits in the U.S. that are over 5% of GDP 10 years into an economic um, recovery. It is simply unprecedented. Um, and I think for now, the market isn't really paying attention to that, um, partly because of the domestic politics in the U.S., um, but in 2020, as the field narrows on the Democratic Party side, and that and as that becomes less of a clown show of 20 guys or 25 or whatever the number is, all speaking uh, at once, and it starts to become obvious who the Democratic Party candidate uh, will be, I think the market will start to focus on the fact that we have a Democratic Party uh, that today promises to spend a lot of money that the U.S. government doesn't have, uh, and we have a Republican Party who basically promises to do the same thing. Uh, the only difference between the two is really where that money will be spent. Uh, and um, you know, as as the market starts to focus on the fact that hold on, really for the first time in a U.S. election, neither party uh, is promising fiscal rectitude, but is basically promising fiscal incontinence. 
uh, I think, you know, there will be an impact on the currency. Compare that to, say, the 1996 election um, between Bob Dole and Bill Clinton, where the debate was who would be best at reducing the budget deficit. Um, and, you know, Bill Clinton had a solid case to make that he, he was a steady pair of hands to, uh, to reduce the budget deficit because he'd been doing it for the past couple of years. Um, and that he could continue to do so looking forward with welfare reform and whatever else. Um, so, you know, I think that's uh, a big shift. And of course this sort of ability to control one's fiscal uh, policy in the late nineties led to a very strong dollar, uh, through the late nineties. Uh, today, uh, my anticipation, um, is that, um, the U S dollar, you know, is starting to make, uh, it's, uh, structural high is, uh, it's, uh, yeah, cyclical and structural highs here. Um, I think there's increasingly signs of that, not least of which the fact that gold is really starting to break out. You know, that's, that's interesting. I, you, you brought back some memories for me. I was actually an undergraduate at the University of San Diego when they held one of those Dole Clinton um, debates on campus. And it's amazing to think about how far we've come uh, from that time in terms of that psychology surrounding deficits. Uh, you know, one of the, the questions I wanted to ask you, and you kind of, I, I think, hinted at it, you know, there is – it seems a lot of the things that, that you're writing about, like this, this dollar, um, you know, the dollar as a serial monogamist, you know, it's been paying attention to the fact that it's maybe the, the less, the least dirty shirt, um, among all the currencies in the world. But investors globally will start paying attention to what's going on, on the fiscal side. Uh, the markets are not right now beginning to pay attention to that, but what this seems to be like a key in a lot of the, the themes that you're writing about is, is, um, these growing, uh, these growing trends that the markets haven't appre- begun to appreciate yet. Um, what is it that 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 uh, helps you, I guess, see these things before the market does see them, and also give you confidence that uh, these things are going to play out the way you think they are? Um, look, at the end of the day, the the biggest uh, confidence you get is always from mar- uh, market prices, right? Um, you know, any of us uh, basically have the same tools to form an opinion. You have the economic data on the one hand. Uh, the problem with economic data, it tends to, uh, you know, come out a little late. It tends to be prone to revisions, etc. cetera. Um, and then you have uh, the market prices, which can confirm your scenario or, or disprove it. Um, the problem with market prices, of course, is they're volatile. Uh, you know, people get emotional um, and, I would say at uh, at extremes, uh, market prices can be uh, uh, especially untrustworthy, um, whether at extremes at the top or extremes uh, at at the bottom. Um, and so, you know, I think when when you start looking through your you know mapping through your scenario in your head, and you think, okay, you know, I believe the U.S. you know there's a good good odds that today. Everybody tends to believe that the U.S. dollar is is, is going to be strong and strong forever. Um, uh, there are signs to me that make sense why it shouldn't be. One of them, I mentioned the, the deterioration in U.S. fiscal policy. Um, another is the fact that, you know, for years and years, the U.S. was the, the main trade and reserve currency for Asia, which is one of the fastest growing parts of the world, and that uh, you are seeing very clearly uh, China trying to attack 
the U.S. dollar's role as Asia's trade and reserve currency and try to replace it with the renminbi. That doesn't mean China will be successful, but at the very least, it means that the U.S. is you know facing an attack that it never had in the past. Uh, so that should, you know, at least be part of your uh, of your thought process. Um, but um, um, you know, so you start to think, okay, yeah, I, I would expect uh, the U.S. dollar to to start rolling over. If it did, you know, what what should it mean? Well, well, how will I know? Um, uh, obviously, you'll know by looking at the price of the U.S. dollar. And here, the U.S. dollar is not weakening, uh, and it's not weakening partly because. You have the Bank of Japan, the ECB, the People's Bank of China, everybody, I think, trying their hardest uh, to weaken their own currencies uh, against uh, against the U.S. dollar. So that's, you know, one one factor. Um, uh, but, uh, you know, another way you can think, OK, is this going to start to happen um, is to look um, at uh, at other markets. Uh, I mentioned gold earlier. Obviously, silver and are start, both starting to point towards potential dollar weakness. Um, frankly, I would, you know, I said there's three prices that matter: uh, interest rates, uh, gold. Um, and, sorry, interest rates, U.S. dollar, and uh, and energy prices. Um, as the U.S. dollar weakens, usually I would have, you would expect oil prices um, to uh, to strengthen. As the U.S. dollar weakens, usually you would uh, expect U.S. Treasuries to uh, to underperform uh, other bond markets around the world. Uh, now these two, conf- so we have a confirming signal from gold. We definitely don't have it from the bond markets. We definitely don't have it uh, from uh, from the energy markets. So for now, this is why I said, you know, I've been expecting this for the past year, uh, but so far I've been wrong. Uh, and this might still, but I think this might still be a story for 2020. Yeah, and I want to get into the the de-dollarization because that seems like a really obvious theme that's that's playing out right now. Um, and I guess you know I I read I read uh, Clash of Empires a couple of weeks ago. This is I mean fantastic read, um, and it's very easy to 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 to, to get through. Very uh, uh, you know easily readable by anybody who's not you know a, a macroeconomist. So I highly recommend it. But there's a, there's a the quote in here that I underlined um, where you're talking about this. Uh, and it's really um, has to do with the, the um, uh, well, I'll, I'll just read it and then we can talk about it. Um, by loosely pegging the renminbi to gold, China could be offering the likes of Russia, Venezuela, Qatar, Iran, and anyone else waiting to bypass the U.S. dollar a deal. We will buy your energy for renminbi, and on the back end, you can either use these renminbi to buy goods from China or to buy Chinese bonds. And if you don't like these options, we'll make uh, a market in gold against your renminbi. The, to me, this strikes me as you know one of the key things developments behind this de-dollarization trend and has huge implications for um the dollar reserve currency you know etc um what what do you see uh kind of going forward um as as kind of the the repercussions of this for for the markets and the world economies um look so you know the the, the theme of de-dollarization is basically the theme of this book, uh, Clash of Empires, that I wrote with my dad. Um, uh, we wrote it over last Christmas, um, and um, yeah, and published it, uh, you know, in the spring. Um, the the general theme, uh, I think, there's something very important uh, unfolding today uh, in Asia, uh, which is a, a, in essence, you could say a structural shift in the global financial architecture. Uh, And this global shift goes, uh, in essence, something like this. Today, Russia 
can sell oil to China, get paid in renminbi, and then use these renminbi to buy gold. Um, and so now, all of a sudden, you can move oil into gold without ever going through the U.S. dollar. Um, now, we might say, oh, well, this is just a, uh, you know, a cosmetic shift. Um, but it matters deeply for countries uh, that are basically non-friends of the U.S., the Russias, the Irans, uh, you know, perhaps the Chinas tomorrow, uh, given the way that the relationship is deteriorating, um, the, the Qatars, uh, so on and so forth. Um, because yeah, I think it's it's hard to underestimate the importance of the U.S. dollar uh, for, for global trade today. Um, you know, if, and, you know, in, in essence, it is very easy for the U.S. to bring the Venezuelan econ economy to its knee. It's very easy for the U.S. to bring the um, Iranian economy to its knees. All it needs to do is cut off access to, to the U.S. dollar. Um, and you saw this, you know, uh, a few years back um, when the U.S. basically told uh, every country in the world, said, look, we want to know who uh, um, who has bank accounts uh, in your countries and if any Americans have bank accounts in your countries. Um, and, you know, so here I am sitting in Hong Kong and now I have to fill out forms and I have an, I'm, a, I'm not American, I'm French, I'm a French citizen living in Hong Kong uh, and I have to fill out forms for the U.S. government to guarantee and verify that I, Louis Gov, who, owns, who has a bank account at HSBC, am not an American citizen. So there's, you know, the ability of the U.S. to impose its rules on anybody on anybody else in the rest of the world um, through the U.S. dollar. I mean, can you imagine, that, you know, if all of a sudden you had to go down to your bank in Portland because the French government had asked you to guarantee to I'd ask your bank in Portland, whoever that might be, uh, to guarantee that you were not French. It's, you know, unthinkable, right? Uh, this sort of extraterritoriality uh, that the U.S. enjoys, and it enjoys it through the U.S. dollar, because if Hong Kong wants to continue using U.S. dollars, then it just has to use U.S. rules. Um, but, of course, for some countries, uh, that really grates them. And so you are now seeing, I think, a shift uh, in mentalities where, you know, for a lot of people, they, a lot of countries don't feel like dealing with the tyranny of the U S dollar anymore and everything that that entails. Uh, and countries, some countries will be looking for alternatives. Uh, and as they do, you know, this, for now, the U.S. has this huge comparative advantage. Um, it's it's an interesting, you know, conversation. Ask any American, what is the biggest comparative advantage of the United States? And every American will tell you, oh, you know, it's we have the rule of law uh, or we have the best universities in the world uh, or uh, we have the best tech sector in the world. Um, and all these things are true, by the way. Uh, the U.S. has, in fact, many comparative advantages. But ask any foreigner what's the biggest comparative advantage of the U.S. And they'll tell you, oh, that's easy. The U.S. has the world's reserve currency. Um, and that by far, you know, my belief is that is by far the biggest comparative advantage of the U.S. over any other country. The fact that the U.S. has the world's reserve currency means that when a crisis comes like 2008, the U.S. can run massive twin deficits. The U.S. can run massive uh, budget deficits, massive uh, trade trade deficits, and not have any funding problems. Um, compare that to Europe. 
you know, in Europe in 2011, 2012, recessions come, trade def, uh, twin deficits move over 5% of GDP, and entire countries start to go bust. Um, doing what the U.S. did in 2008 and running a budget deficit of 9 or 10% of GDP is unfathomable for any country except the U.S. Um, and that's because the U.S. is the, the, the reserve currency. Uh, but of course, what's happening today is that uh, this huge comparative advantage of the U.S. Uh, is now being threatened directly by China, who slowly but surely is trying to chip at it. Well, it's, it, and it's interesting to me that this ties directly into with you know your 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 thesis for where the dollar is going to trade over the next eighteen months. Um, you know, they're, they're closely uh, interrelated. Um, and it's also closely interrelated to another theme um, that you've been been writing about, which is um, it's not just de-dollarization, it's deglobalization, um, which has also important ramifications. What are what is this um, trend of deglobalization, and and what does it mean for for uh, markets in the economy? Well, so you know, the very first book I wrote um, it was called Our Brave New World. It was published in early two thousand five, and the idea of that book was: look, we're moving to a world. Uh, of what we called back then uh, platform companies, uh, where the smart companies, in essence, if you look at a company, companies do three things. Uh, they design a good, they produce a good, and they sell the good. Um, and our thesis back in 2005 was that you know the smart companies would design the good and sell the good, like Apple does or like Ikea does. Uh, and the manufacturing bit in the middle could be taken care of by uh, you know, anybody who wants to do it in China or in Poland or in Mexico or, or wherever, because the manufacturing bit in the middle is often uh, the part with the lowest value added. It's often the part with the highest volatility. Uh, it's the part that fo forces you to keep um, high inventories. Um, you know, it's highly capital consuming, etc. So if you can pass that bit off to somebody else, you end up just like Apple with a business with very high margins, uh, fairly low volatility, um, and uh, you know, and that's a good business. Uh, high returns on equity, um, i.e., all the characteristics that uh, that you want in in a business. Um, and so that was the thesis of my my 2005 book. And uh, part of the thesis of the 2005 book was the idea that as companies move from being vertically integrated producers to um, uh, to these platform companies, um, you know, that would free up a lot of capital and that companies uh, in the Western world, you'd thus see massive share buybacks uh, because companies wouldn't know what to do with their money. Uh, you'd see bigger and bigger share buybacks, which would drive higher and higher valuations. Um, and I think that's the, the cycle that we've had really for the past 15, 20 years. Um, the question indeed is, have we come to the now to the end of this cycle? Um, in essence, you know, the idea that, oh, I can pass on my manufacturing bit to, uh, to whatever Bozo wants to do it in China or Mexico, etc., is now directly under attack, uh, mostly for political reasons, um, mostly because perhaps we took it too far. Uh, and, uh, you know, workers in the Western world, the people whose you know, main comparative advantage was just to have two strong arms and a, and a willingness to work hard, uh, fell too far behind. Um, and, uh, and we didn't, and as a society, we didn't take care of them properly. So now there is the backlash that we see, whether through Brexit, whether through Trump, uh, whether through, uh, uh, and perhaps that's also, you know, part of the demonstrations we see in Hong Kong today. Um, and uh, as this political backlash 
uh, unfolds, uh, what you see, I think, what is becoming clearer and clearer is that as po- you know, politicians realize, hold on, we have to protect our workers more. We have to move more of our production um, uh, at home, uh, which is, of course, what President Trump tries to do. Uh, you end up in a situation where really the world increasingly looks like it's breaking up into three zones, um, each with their own reserve currency, i.e. the dollar, the euro, the renminbi, uh, and perhaps much more importantly, each with their own supply lines. So, you know, in essence, President Trump's message is, uh, if you want to sell to to the U.S. consumer, uh, that's great as long as you produce uh, here in North America. Um, and, uh, you know, you can be Toyota, uh, and we're very happy to buy Toyotas if they're made in a plant in Tennessee. Uh, we're very happy to buy, uh, you know, Foxconn-made gadgets if they're made in a plant in Wisconsin, uh, and so, so on and so forth. Um, but if that's the world that we're moving into, um, then I think that's a brutal readjustment uh, in uh, in financial markets uh, because for now financial markets are very much priced for a continuation of a world in which basically platform companies reap all the rewards. Um, meanwhile, politically, uh, it's becoming quite obvious that everything is moving towards uh, or sorry is moving against the platform companies reaping all the rewards, whether it be protectionism, whether it be increased regulations on some of those big tech platform companies and, and so forth. Um, and so I think there's a bit of a dichotomy here. Um, and it's, you know, this could be a theme for the coming years as to how, how this unfolds. Well, you know, I, I've, I've never thought of it that way, that, uh, you know, the globalization allowed these companies to be a lot less capital intensive. Uh, and then this, the switch to deglobalization should you know, be the reverse. But there's also the other side of it, too, that globalization opened up new markets to a lot of these companies. So it, it kind of boosted growth and profitability at the same time. Does this deglobalization trend um, that's kind of really in its early stages, if it continues, does that, uh, you know, put a put a damper on that the top line growth side of the equation too? I would think so. Uh, yes, you're absolutely right. Uh, all of a sudden, you know, what, you know, products that were, you know, in essence re- regional uh, in scope um, moved to be global, um, and yeah, globalization was a massive, massive tailwind to uh, to profitability. Uh, everywhere, especially, you know, for these scalable businesses, you know, for the, for these Microsofts of this world where obviously, you know, printing a new software disc costs nothing. Um, so, uh, you know, some, these platform companies were, were huge beneficiaries of, of a number of macro trends, uh, which now might, now might be turning around. Look at, you know, look at Huawei's, uh, effort to now launch its own, um, um, operating system, now that they basically fear that uh, they're going to be cut off of Android, um, they almost have no choice but to say, "All right, we we well, one option is we collapse our business. The other is we've got to develop our own operating system." Um, and I, you know, is this an anomaly or is this the start of a new trend? If it's the start of a new trend, uh, is that new trend reflected in uh, the the price of financial assets today? Uh, I believe it's the start of a new trend, and I believe it is not reflected in the price of a, of most asset prices today. Well, yeah, in, in one of your pieces that you recently wrote, um, I got to find it really quick. I think it was you know a quote from from you talking to clients and saying, 
Um, no, here it is. Do you believe that globalization was one of the most important macro trends of the past couple of decades? The client answers, absolutely. Uh, do, what, do you believe globalization is coming to an end? It sure looks that way. What are you doing about it in your portfolio? So far, nothing. <laughs> you know, it's, yeah. just, it's just astounding that these, these trends are, are so, I mean, they're plain as day to see them kind of unravel or, or just playing out. And still, you know, the markets, I mean, this is why the markets aren't, aren't reacting to them because people say, well, yeah, I see it happening, but I'm, I'm not changing the way I, I manage money uh, in reaction to them. Um, that, you know, one other, one other theme that, that you've written about that ties in, you know, really nicely with these is that, you know, uh, globalization, you know, allowed companies to um, become more profitable and, and reduce their expenses through offshoring of labor and whatnot. And so it could have been one of the most powerful disinflationary trends of the past 30 plus years. Um, uh, so it only stands to reason that if we're now shifting from this deglobalization, disinflationary trend, uh, uh, I'm sorry, from globalization, disinflationary uh, to deglobalization, that that would potentially be inflationary um, because it ramps up costs, makes things more capital intensive for companies. Um, but there's a big, uh, also, I think, uh, I don't want to say misunderstanding, but you have a contrarian view on inflation, too, uh, and related to, you know, people say, well, that that's fine uh, regarding, you know, deglobalization, but demographics are not going to allow inflation to, to make a comeback. It seems like that, that is exactly what the bond markets are pricing in right now is inflation will never come back. Talk, talk a little bit about your thoughts on, on um, the relationship between, uh, I guess, demographics and inflation. Um, yeah, I think, look, uh, whenever you hear never in the markets, that always, you know, kind of tingles my ears, right? Because never is a really long time. Um, so when you hear something will never happen, uh, and especially if you can take the other side for not too much money, then maybe there's, there's, there's something interesting to do. Uh, again, if only because never is a, is, is a long time. Um, I think, you know, today, uh, I would say the, the general consensus view indeed is uh, inflation uh, is uh, – or sorry, deflation is here to stay. Uh, and very often people point to Japan as the, uh, as the uh, precursor to the trends that will unfold everywhere else in the world. Uh, and here the view is pretty simple. Uh, Japan obviously had a massive financial bust. Uh, its banking system went on flat on its uh, on its uh, back. Uh, at the same time, Japan started aging, um, and as you age, you get weaker growth. And with with Japan aging, you saw this unfolding of deflation, and voila, this is what we're going to get uh, in uh, in the Western world. Um, and you know, there's there's a logic to to this argument. Um, but I would uh, propose another one is, you know, part of the deflation story uh, in Japan was that Japan really had a front row seat to the biggest deflationary force in the world, which was China's arrival uh, onto the global uh, scene. And in essence, uh, China's depressing wages uh, for the entire industrial world, uh, not least of which all the industrial country, uh, companies in, uh, in Asia. So, um, uh, so that's number one. Now, you know, the first thing I, my first step is always to ask, okay, undeniably China has been a big, has been a big deflationary force for the world. 
going forward, do we still think China is a deflationary force for the world? Um, some people, you know, very cogently argue, absolutely, China is a deflationary force for the world because the next thing China will do is devalue its currency 25, uh, 30, 50, pick your number, percent. Uh, and as the Chinese de uh, devaluation uh, is around the corner, there'll be another big deflationary shock for the system. Um, and you had a little bit of an inkling of that just last week, right? When the renminbi broke uh, seven to the U.S. dollar, then all of a sudden, you know, massive rally in U.S. Treasuries, bond yields uh, break down to uh, to new lows for the year, and so on and so forth. Um, you know, for the reasons we discussed before, I actually don't believe the renminbi will devalue massively. Uh, I'm I'm a renminbi bull. Uh, I think over the next five years, the renminbi will be higher uh, against uh, the U.S. dollar. Um, and potentially a good, a good bit meaningfully higher. Um, and, um, and that brings me to, um, to the, uh, to, to, you know, back to where our conversation started really is that, um, I think if you're in the U S, um, a lot of your deflation view should be driven again by where do you think the U S dollar is going to be? Um, if you think the U S dollar is going to keep being a super strong currency, uh, then undeniably that is deflationary for the world. Um, you know, a super strong uh, U.S. dollar means um, constrained policy uh, in emerging markets. A super strong U.S. dollar means uh, weaker commodity prices, uh, so on and so forth. Um, I, For the reasons I already highlighted, I don't believe in the stronger dollar. Uh, and in fact, what I find interesting is that last week, you know, after the Fed cut rates, what did you see? You saw Thailand cut rates. You saw Indonesia cut rates. Uh, sorry, not Indonesia, India. You saw Thailand cut rates. You saw India cut rates. You saw um, New Zealand cut rates. Um, and that that brings you to a fairly tip back to a fairly typical cycle of the Fed eases, which gives a lot of leeway for central banks uh, across emerging markets uh, to start easing as well. Um, I'd also highlight something that's interesting that's happened in recent days is, you know, the past 10 days in markets have been pretty crappy. You've had a number of risk-off days. Uh, in every one of these risk-off days, the, the DXY went down, not up. Uh, in every one of the risk-off days, uh, the U.S. dollar is now weakening, not not strengthening, uh, which is a very different uh, shift from what we saw before. Um, and so, uh, and now even in risk-off days, you used to see the uh, oil prices uh, collapse in every risk-off day. Uh, what you're now seeing is basically oil prices, you know, now that we're sort of back to that $50 floor, um, uh, oil prices actually hold their own even in risk-off days. Um, and so that, you know, fundamentally, you know, as, as you look at, at inflation going forward, um, what I know is that one of the big deflationary forces of the world was globalization. My belief is that this is uh, coming to an end. Um, what I know is that one of the big deflationary forces of recent years was the strong U.S. dollar. Uh, and I believe that uh, this, too, is, uh, is coming to an end. Uh, having said all this, historically, it's very hard to get uh, a pickup in inflation without rising oil prices. Um, and, uh, you know, rising oil prices tend to be, you know, one, one of the key drivers. It's almost as if, you know, you you get pissed off as you're waiting at the pump uh, and you see the numbers go through. Uh, and so you go into your office and you ask your boss for a raise. Um, and it's, uh, you know, it, you know it, it's funny because energy is now a much smaller part 
of our spending than it used to be, but that correlation still holds. Um, that to get a meaningful pickup in inflation, you do need higher energy prices. Um, and so, you know, look, I think if you look at financial markets today, they're basically priced for a continuation of deflation forever. Uh, in essence, what you're seeing today, I, I call this the dumbbell portfolio. Uh, people think, okay, there's there's limited growth uh, in the world, so I'm going to go out and buy massively overvalued tech stocks uh, because at least I know that there'll be growth there. Um, but I am somewhat worried that because they are somewhat overpriced, that uh, they could fall hard. So I'm going to hedge those by buying very overvalued bonds. So I've got, and that's, you know, the portfolio that's done very well for the past few years is owning overvalued tech stocks hedged by overvalued bonds. Um, now, needless to say, if inflation comes into, into play, um, then you get crushed on both sides of your portfolio. Uh, so I would say that today, you know, the hedge you want in your portfolio, and if like me, you think, okay, if my risk is inflation picks up, but inflation can't pick up without higher oil prices, then perhaps one of the best hedges at this juncture for a portfolio is to own the very beaten up, very underowned, very much hated uh, energy uh, stocks that actually, if nothing else, will hedge the rest of your portfolio against, uh, against a potential inflation shock. You know, and I think that's one of the things that really appeals. I'm a value investor at heart, and you strike me as a, a value macro <laughs> investor, which is you know why a lot of your ideas I think appeal to me. Um, I, I, just to come back to the inflation thing, uh, you know, one more time, um, and and to tie it into demographics, there was an interesting report the IMF put out maybe a year or two ago. I think it's the IMF that tied uh, you know inflation trends to the. Um, dependency ratio in the country and and because people have this idea that because we, we have an aging society that um you know it necessarily means deflation but, but you had a piece um i think it was back in june um where you discussed a relationship that we've gone from essentially a saving a, a, you know a savings type of um economy since 1980 till today to more of a dissaving um type of phase and, and that should really kind of uh, be the framework to think about demographics uh, and inflation. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, if, if some of your readers are interested in some of these reports uh, that are fairly, you know, chart heavy, uh, but, um, uh, you know, they, they can contact me at, at Louis at, uh, at gafcal.com. But the, the argument indeed is, is, is pretty simple. Um, you know, as, as we move uh, now to obviously the, the baby boomers and, and then, and then some uh, all, all moving into retirement uh, and, in essence, consuming the savings that they've uh, they've piled in uh, into over the years, uh, as pension funds uh, instead of growing start to shrink, uh, as insurance companies uh, instead of growing start to shrink, uh, we we move into a world where in essence we're, we are going to start consuming, and we've already started actually consuming our capital base. Um, now, there's two ways you can look at that. As we start consuming our capital base, you know to pay for our medicine, to pay for, you know, the, the opera we want to go in or the restaurants or whatever else. Um, as our old people start to consume uh, the capital base, I personally don't see why that should be deflationary. Uh, consuming the capital, uh, why, why that should be deflationary. Consuming the capital base uh, should be inflationary for, for several re uh, reasons. The first, of course, is that uh, you'll have more money chasing not as many goods, um, you know, and uh, so if nothing else, that should push prices higher. Um, 
The second reason, of course, is as you consume your capital base, uh, you move to being a less productive uh, economy. Um, you know, there's nothing positive about consuming your capital base. Um, and of course, the, you know, part of the the growth of deflation or the part of the deflation story of recent years was one where productivity uh, was decently strong uh, everywhere around the world and improving. We're producing and you know that's what capitalism is all about, right? Producing more and more goods with fewer and fewer inputs. Um, but now it, we're moving to a world where it's not about producing more and more goods with fewer and fewer inputs, but it'll be increasingly about consuming more and more with past savings. Um, and yeah, to me, that's 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 inflationary. Now, there's another third possibility, of course, is that the consuming that our retirees aim to do, whether you know getting hip replacements or diabetes medicine or whatever else, um, the consuming that our retirees want to do uh, is actually won't, there won't be enough savings for uh, the consuming that our retirees want to do. That in essence, even by consuming the capital that they saved, uh, they'll be falling short, um, which leaves you with two possibilities. The first is that our retirees adjust their consumption, that they tighten their belt and they think, okay, well, I've got to reduce my standard of living uh, because I haven't saved enough. Um, alternatively, the second option is that they vote in uh, um, they vote in politicians who promise them to give them the um, the spending that they want, uh, even though they perhaps didn't save for it. Um, and you know, I think there's in, in most Western democracies, there's a distinct possibility that we go down this latter route, um, not only because politicians love to buy votes, but that because in a world where you get zero percent interest rates or below from from central banks, you know, if you're a politician, why wouldn't you give a bunch of benefits to retirees, even if those benefits, of course, are completely uh, unproductive? Um, why wouldn't you do it? Everybody likes being a nice guy. Um, for me, there was a sort of uh, you know, shocking moment uh, a few years back when when David Cameron in the UK was elected, um, and the very first thing he did was uh, basically in the same breath, like the very first measures he passed uh, as he came into to number ten, he said, "We're we promise that we're not going to touch pensions, and in fact, we're going to re up pensions, and we're going to index them onto inflation, etc." Um, so you know, huge payout to the retirees. And at the same time, he says, university that used to be free will now be payable. So in essence, imposing a tax on young people um, that didn't exist before. Um, so, I mean, can, can you believe of a less productive use of capital, right? It's we give more money to retirees and less money to students. Uh, you know, a, a, a country that would want to invest for its future would most likely be doing the reverse. Um, but that, of course, is where most Western countries are going to be heading, if only because of the demographic, you know, the demographic and democratic forces. As our countries age, it will be in uh, the very interest of politicians to cater to the desires of the retiring cohorts. And that will mean, uh, of course, uh, I think, higher inflation. 
Well, and, and here in the United States, there's a lot of talk about, uh, you know, free college for all, free Medicare for all, you know, and, and, and increasing spending to a, an incredible degree and potentially paying for it by just printing money. I want to, I know we're, we're running short on time and I want to change it up completely here. I know you're a huge uh, rugby player, rugby fan. What is it about rugby that really appeals to you? And uh, is there anything from, you know, playing that throughout your life that uh, has helped you? become a better investor uh probably not no uh i'm uh, i'm not that huge i'm only 95 kilos um okay. <laughs> and, and i never played at a at, at that greater level I, I still play today um and uh and enjoy the sport a lot i uh, i enjoy the camaraderie um i enjoy the uh um you know the fact that when you play rugby you meet people from all sorts of backgrounds. Um, and for me, it's, it's actually one of the only sports uh, where you can be playing with, you know, you know, in my team back in Hong Kong, uh, there's firemen, there's policemen, uh, there's bankers, there's lawyers, there's teachers. Um, and we, we all come together, you know, several times a week for training. And then we, we, we play on the weekends. Um, and we've known each other for, for 20 years. You know, I think in this world of ours where increasingly people li- live, uh, you know, isolated and, uh, and cut off from, uh, from perhaps the way other people live, um, uh, for me, it's, it's, it's one way in essence to, uh, to meet people that I otherwise wouldn't meet uh, in, in my daily life. And I think in Hong Kong, it's all the more important in that it's, it's very easy in Hong Kong to – you know, your friends are expats. They all work in finance or in law or in shipping, and and you stay in fairly small circles without realizing, um, in essence, how the rest of the society that you're a part of uh, really really evolves. Um, and so, if, you know, I I don't think uh, it's made me a better investor by any stretch. Uh, probably too many hits on the head for that. Um, <laughs> but uh, I I do believe uh, uh, it. Uh, you know it. it it makes me perhaps a more interesting person. Or I'd like to think it makes me a more interesting person. Well, yeah, I'm, I, I I love to play ice hockey. I'm not good at all, but uh, yeah, I've, <laughs> I've hit my head a few times, and I think, why the heck do I do this? This does not help me at all with my investing or anything. But uh, Louis, I, where, where can people? Uh, where's the best place for people to keep up with you and, and your ideas? Um, well, so there's lots of well, not so many, but a few places. The, the easiest, of course, um, you know, we have a website. Of course, it's uh, gafcal.com, G-A-V-E-K-A-L.com. Um, I'm on Twitter. You know, the uh, handle is Louis Gov, but I'm not there. That I, you know, I'll tweet every now and then, but but not that much. Um, we also have a, a private wealth management business based, based in Bellevue, Washington, uh, which reproduces some of our stuff. Because um, you know most of the GAFCAL stuff is behind a paywall, and it's mostly geared towards institutional investors. Um, but some of it is reproduced on uh, the Evergreen GAFCAL website, and they produce a free newsletter that uh, people should definitely sign up for. It's a great newsletter, um, and uh, yeah, so th- those are really the the the, the simplest uh, parts to uh, yeah to keep in touch. And maybe hopefully, maybe you'll have me back, so there'll be another way to keep in touch. Absolutely, and I, I I read the uh, the Evergreen GavCal um, blog religiously. I, I don't miss a post, so I highly recommend everybody check that out. But Louis, thank you so much for taking the time to do this. I, I really appreciate it. Absolutely, my pleasure. It was uh, great to to, uh, to finally catch up.
And that does it for another episode of Super Investors and the Art of Worldly Wisdom. As always, you can find notes and links related to this episode at thefelderreport.com. Thank you for listening, and until next time, buy low, sell high. Man looks in the abyss. There's nothing staring back at him. At that moment, man finds his character. And that is what keeps him out of the abyss.